Well, let's let's go ahead and get into our messages this morning. This morning, we're going to talk about personal problems, hard personal problems, the kind of problems that do not have easy solutions. And they are constantly resurfacing over and over again, reminding the owners that they haven't gone away. Like a grain of sand, when it gets into your eye, and every time you blink, you're reminded, yep, I'm still here. These kinds of problems. We'll be looking in the book of 1 Samuel, looking at a story that occurred more than a thousand years before the first Christmas. But the story has the fingerprint of Jesus on it from the beginning to the end. Within the story are two Old Testament figures, Hannah and the high priest Eli. Hannah's problem was physical, but it led to increased, nearly unbearable family problems. And as we'll see, Hannah dealt well with her problems, so we'll want to pay attention to her story. Eli also had an extremely serious problem. On the surface, his was a family problem, but at its core, it was a deep spiritual problem. Eli did very poorly in dealing with his problem, so you may want to pay even more attention to his story. First Samuel is the ninth book in our Bibles, following the books of Judges and Ruth. First Samuel is a book that doesn't get as much attention as it probably deserves. The book contains 31 chapters, but we're only going to be looking at the first two or three chapters. As I was preparing the sermon, I thought to myself, what if people walk away from church after the service thinking, perhaps even only at a subconscious level, that the subject matter covered this morning might represent the theme of the entire book of 1 Samuel. And I don't want that to happen, because that would be inaccurate. Today we are going to set out to learn just a couple of lessons from the book from people who had difficult problems. So in the next 30 seconds, and just to ensure we're keeping everything in proper context, here's the bigger picture of all of 1 Samuel. The book, event, the book describes events taking place from 1100 B.C. to 1000 B.C. 1 Samuel covers a pivotal time in Israel's history. Israel is going to transition from the period known as Judges into an age when they would be led by a king. It becomes a monarchy. It would leave the days of regional leaders like Deborah and Gideon and Samson, and it would enter into a time of national leaders like King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. And the man responsible for overseeing the nation's transition was Samuel. Samuel was a remarkable man. His very birth required a miracle because his mother Hannah was unable to have children. So remember, the theme of 1 Samuel of the whole book is God raising up men and women 
to leave behind the chaotic period of judges and to move into the time of kings as national leaders. That's the big picture. Now let's pray. Father, thank you for your word concerning this your word this morning covering events from more than 3000 years ago. We know that you give us the details of this historical account for a reason, and we pray your holy spirit will open our eyes to what you desire us to see this morning. Amen. So let's begin. Open your Bibles please to 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 1. And we read, there was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. So we begin with this certain man, Elkanah. We know where he lived, the area of Ephraim, which is an area roughly in the center of Israel. And we know something about his ancestry, who his father was, and his father's father, and so on. One additional piece of important background information that isn't mentioned in this narrative is he was a Levite. First Chronicles chapter 6 provides Elkanah and therefore Samuel's tribal ancestry, which is significant since his son Samuel will carry out the duties of a priest, which require a Levitical background. When the verse refers to Elkanah as an Ephrathite, it's a reference to his location, not his ancestry. Just as I could be referred to a Tennessean, even though my true background is probably leaning more towards the Irish. So we move on to verse 2. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. The Bible economizes words like no other written record. It packs so much critical information into so little space, which makes sense, when you consider it has to include all the information that God wished to communicate to all of mankind for all time. And it accomplishes it in about a thousand pages. Think about yourself. If you were packing a medium-sized suitcase for a six-month vacation in an isolated area, there would be no room for anything extra but also nothing essential could be left out. And this is the Bible. And in these two verses of 1 Samuel, the author lays the foundation for the eventual birth of Samuel and the collapse of the house of Eli. But I need to jump to the middle of the verses in verse 3. We need to take careful notice of this. Where it says year by year, or as the NIV translation puts it, year after year, everything we will see concerning Hannah and Eli's problem is wrapped in the context of repetitive and continuing cycle connected to the feasts and sacrifices at the tabernacle. Several times a year, 
year after year, their problems will be brought back to their attention. We should be grateful that God has chosen to take us deep into the troubled worlds of Hannah and Eli because this characteristic of a heavy problem that just won't go away, the ones that may only come in your life once or twice, can ruin you if not dealt with wisely. And God allows us to be in these problem situations intentionally, sometimes to force force our faith to be pushed deeper, like in Hannah's case, and sometimes to bring us face to face with a weak area in our faith, as with Eli. So let's look more at Hannah's problem first. In verse 2, we can see that Elkanah had two wives. If you're a student of the Old Testament, you probably begin to smell some trouble here already. After all, is there a single instance in the Bible where there is a peaceful, stable family situation when a man had more than one wife? I can't think of any. In every case, there is increased trouble due to polygamy. So what does the Bible say about the topic? Go ahead and turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus uses this verse in Matthew 19 in his warning against divorce and adds the insight that when they become one flesh, they are joined together by God. The Apostle Paul uses this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to warn us against joining together with a prostitute. And concerning our polygamy question this morning, this verse plainly shows us how God has set the boundary for marriage to be between a man and his wife, not wives. Having more than one wife during that time in history may have been common practice, but it was never God's design for marriage. The ground rules for marriage were set for all time, for all mankind, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. One man, one woman, joined together for a lifetime. Now let's continue on with verse 2. The name of the one was Hannah, This is back in 1 Samuel, chapter 1. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. If this were a modern story, perhaps taking place in Knoxville or Nashville, and we were to overlook the facts that, that having two wives is illegal, I think it would be fair to say that the woman who had no children would be considered capable of at least being being at least content, as content as the woman who had children. In fact, the childless woman might even receive more of society's respect 
for being career-minded or for being more considerable to overpopulation concerns. So why is having children so important to Hebrew women? If, if we are to understand Hannah's situation, why her situation is so desperate, we need to know what's behind it. And it goes all the way back to the promises of Abraham a thousand years earlier. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, God tells Abraham, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the stars of sand that is on the seashore. God's promises to multiply Abraham's offspring would be carried out by Hebrew women having children. Having many children was an indicator of God's blessing on a woman. And now if you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 12. Moses is giving a speech to the Israelites. And we're going to see again why having children is so important to Hebrew women here. Starting with verse 12, chapter 7. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he has swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain, and your wine, and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land he swore to your fathers to give you. All right, now get this. Think of this if you're a Hebrew woman who can't have children. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. The Hebrew woman who was barren would have to be troubled by this passage. Was she not listening to or not keeping God's rules? Was she being punished for disobedience? And then if we jump back into 1 Samuel chapter 1, in verse 4, we'll see that Hannah's problem was magnified by an enemy living right in her own home. Back at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 4, On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb, so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Three times a year, the Israelites were to attend ceremonial feasts. In this case, it was located in Shiloh because Jerusalem hadn't yet become the center of worship at this point. The husband Elkanah made it a habit to give Hannah a double portion of meat and Peninnah, the other wife, only a single portion. 
because he loved Hannah, loved her more. He did this openly. Admittedly, this was a sad situation for Peninnah, for the unloved wife. After all, she was the one who had children. Seems like she should be the one that's loved. But none of this was Hannah's fault, not her barren condition, not the way Elkanah treats his wives differently. But how does Peninnah react to this situation? She takes out her pain on Hannah. She provokes her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And this was the endless cycle going on in the family, as it says, year after year as they attended the feasts. Elkanah, the husband, goes out of his way to show Hannah how much he loves her. The jealous Peninnah reacts to Elkanah's obvious love for Hannah by provoking and irritating her. And then as we'll see, Hannah weeps and is depressed and she can't eat. Then the cycle starts all over again with Elkanah trying to make Hannah happy again. Now most of us have homes with a lot of space. A lot, probably a lot more than we need and certainly a lot more than anybody has had in history per family member. But imagine living in Hannah's situation confined to a small home by our standards. Living with Peninnah and Peninnah's children seven days a week, Peninnah would always be looking for an angle to aggravate Hannah. Peninnah's children would be a constant reminder that God has blessed her with the promises made to Abraham. And I can just imagine what some of Peninnah's comments to Hannah might be. Perhaps something like this. This would be, in my imagination, what Peninnah might say to Hannah on occasion. So Hannah, I find it interesting that Elkanah practically makes a fool out of himself with this double portion of meat business, whereas God has clearly removed his favor from you. What do you make of that? Or maybe she might say something like this. Hannah, do you think once you've advanced beyond the childbearing years that you'll still cry so much? Or will you be easier to live with? Now, if you've ever lived in a home where there's constant tension, then you can relate to Hannah's situation with Peninnah. My personal rule of thumb, when we still had children living in our home, was five minutes. If I ever felt like the family was having to walk on eggshells, live with tension, for more than five minutes because someone had attitude issues, I would try to resolve it immediately. To the extent possible, the home should be a peaceful retreat for all family members. But when it's not possible, often the church can be a place where a person might escape from a stressful home. In fact, many visitors have commented that this church has a welcoming and loving atmosphere. But in Hannah's case, going to the tabernacle for the appointed feast actually intensified Peninnah's aggressive aggravation due to Elkanah's 
unequal food distribution. As it says in verse 2, so it went on year after year as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And how long did this go on? For years. But God used this painful situation to mold the mother who, out of bitter distress, would give birth to a Samuel. If God had provided Hannah a shoulder to cry on with a kind-hearted Peninnah, we might not have Bible books titled First and Second Samuel. And then in verse 8, we read on. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? If you're a man and you read verse 8, you might be tempted to think, now that's a pretty good point, Elkanah. On the other hand, if you're a woman, you'll probably just shake your head and roll your eyes. The reality of this situation is this. The more Elkanah favors Hannah to lift her spirits, the more agitation from Penenna. Hannah's husband is a kind man, but he doesn't understand Hannah's problem. Hannah's rival understands her problem, understands it precisely, and she uses it for evil. So next we see Hannah's response in verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. I want you to notice Eli the high priest, he's keeping an eye on what's going on in the tabernacle. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget, forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now I have no doubt that Hannah had prayed for a son numerous times as her distress continued year after year. But this time, Hannah's prayer included a vow to give the child back to the Lord, whom he would serve his entire life. And God honored the prayer, and Hannah goes on to have a son, Samuel, and then other children later on. But we need to notice the characteristics of Hannah's problems and what she did and what she didn't do. None of it was her fault. Verse 6 says the Lord had closed her womb. There is no indication that Hannah ever returned evil for evil. She takes her problems to the Lord in fervent prayer. The problem went on year after year, but she never lost faith in God. She continued to trust him. This is the most striking part. The Bible doesn't hide the fact that she's experiencing suffering. We see her weep. We see she's unable to eat. But she never runs out of faith in God. 
So in the end, she's one of the heroes in the Bible. But now we turn to Eli's problem. Hannah, at this point in the story, is still praying at the tabernacle. Starting in verse 12. She continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. So Eli, as the high priest, shows a concern for respectable behavior at the place of worship. Somewhat ironically, as we're going to see. We go on. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. We have to pause here because Hannah uses the term worthless woman. She's asking Eli not to mistake her for a worthless woman. The implication is that if she was a worthless woman, then Eli would have a cause to rebuke her. The King James Version doesn't use the word worthless woman. It translates it as a daughter of Belial. When we see the word worthless, we, th we usually would think of it as meaning valueless, perhaps lazy, maybe just a drunken woman who's babbling. But the King James Version reflects the language more accurately with daughter of Belial. Because daughter of Belial includes an essence of evil, of wicked behavior. In fact, by the time of the New Testament writers, the word Belial had become a synonym for Satan. Now we need to jump. We're, we're, we're on Eli's problem. So we need to jump over to chapter 2 in 1 Samuel and verse 12 as we dig further into Eli's problems. Chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. So the Holy Spirit here, through the author of the book, states plainly that Eli's sons were worthless men. They were sons of Belial. Think of the irony here. Hannah was deep in prayer to the Lord and Eli mistakenly assumed she was a daughter of Belial, so he rebuked her. Eli's sons don't know the Lord and are sons of Belial. And what does Eli do about it? Let's read on. Verse 13. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, 
Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. There's a lot said there, but here's the bottom line. The sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were taking prime cuts out of the sacrifices brought by, and notice how it says, all of the Israelites who came there. The priests were taking by force the portions of the sacrifice that were supposed to be dedicated to the Lord. Imagine how demoralizing the priest's behavior would be to the people. The Jews were obligated to go to Shiloh to make offerings year after year, but they also knew that the system was rigged and there was nothing they could do about it. How many Israelites eventually just stopped showing up for the required feasts? But how much did Eli, the high priest, know about this behavior? Jump to verse 22 to see. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. We need to notice how condemning the text is. Eli kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel. Eli hears the reports from all the people. So how much did Eli know about his son's sins as a high priest? All of it. Everything. And in addition, we find out about the immoral conduct of his sons with the female staff. Now, Eli does confront them. He points out their behavior is evil. But the sons, who would likely be at least 50 years old at this point in time, they don't listen. So the Lord himself will give the final verdict on Eli's handling of the situation. In chapter 3, starting in verse 12, now this is God speaking to Samuel, who is by this time living with Eli in Shiloh, but he's still a youth. And this is what God says to Samuel about Eli. God speaking, On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever. Now, that is the important part. For the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house 
shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So where does the fault lie? With the man in charge. Eli, the high priest, Proverbs 25, 26 comes to mind. Like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. So just as we summarize the characteristics of Hannah's situation, here's Eli's situation summary. The problem with Eli's sons went on year after year. Everyone, including Eli, was aware of the situation. It was Eli's responsibility to fix the problem. Although concerned with the situation, Eli only issued useless verbal warnings. Now here's the big one. Eli put his son's happiness above honoring God. And Eli is certainly not regarded as a Bible hero. My wife Lisa and I received some news recently about a couple we had been connected with in a small group many years ago at another church. The husband was the group's leader. He was a man I certainly considered a close friend and a Christian brother. At the time we were in the small group, all the couples were at the age of having babies. Every now and then there would be three or more pregnant wives all at the same time. Now, more than 20 years later, all of the children are grown and many of them are married. The news that we received recently was that the daughter of this couple is engaged to be married. And the parents are very supportive of their daughter and are publicly praising the upcoming wedding. And I suppose a large contributor to a happy marriage is having supportive parents except not in this case. This particular wedding will have two brides and no groom. We were absolutely shocked when we heard the news. Our friends in dealing with this situation have chosen the path of Eli, the low road. They are putting the perceived happiness of their daughter above honoring God. Now granted, even if they were opposed to the marriage, there would probably be little they could do to prevent it from occurring. But that's when Christian parents take the high road, the path of Hannah. You're deeply distressed, you weep bitterly, and you pray to the Lord for the daughter's salvation. Wait upon the Lord and do not run out of faith. Let's pray. 
Father, there are some listening this morning who are currently fighting battles with serious problems that have gone on year after year. Lord, in this new year, 2022, help us to discern whether our battles will be won on our knees in bitter and weeping and in prayer or on our feet standing firm defending the truth of your word. May you be glorified in our lives in the new year. Amen.